I am glad that you are here today or you are joining us online. I am learning more and more about the reach that we have through the technology and well aware that we have uh, many, many people join us, some local that are still being cautious with COVID, and that's fully understandable, and some that are around the world. And so I just want to welcome everyone here that you're here for this series as we understand what it means to come face-to-face with Jesus. Before we get into the series, though, today, the message for today, I want to advertise some that's coming up because I want to really invite you to be here to this. Several weeks ago, I asked for all kinds of questions about what do you think we need to be talking about. And I received numerous questions that had to do with help us understand a biblical perspective on all the sexual issues that are going on right now. And so, as a staff, we've been talking through this, and Justin Hammond, for the youth ministry, has decided to bring in Robert Oglesby, a professor at Abilene Christian University, to help us understand how to biblically navigate an over-sexualized world. And he has got great research and experience in this. And so we're going to conduct a seminar coming up on September 12th. And what I would like you to do is I'd like you to put that date in the calendar. And if you can be there, you can go to your phone right now and you can pull up westernhills.church and you'll see a link right there on the homepage at westernhills.church to register for the seminar. On September 12th, it's going to start in our second hour. It's going to start following worship. It'll be part one. Then we'll provide lunch for everybody. Then we'll have part two. And he'll stay and do a question and answer session as well. You want to be a part of this. So register. We need to know account. And we need to know if you need child care. So I want you to, to register for that. You can do that at westernhills.church. Second and this will start into our message. On Friday, I started receiving uh, text messages from the staff, and they were congratulating me. And they had figured out, and I had forgotten, that Friday, which ironically was Friday the 13th, marked my 20 years here at Western Hills. And for that... <laughs> I appreciate you for putting up with me that long. And I share that with you for... For this reason, because even with that kind of experience that we've had together, God has laid on my heart that our most exciting days are still ahead of us. And we are coming into a very exciting time. I love to see what God's doing in our youth ministry, what God's doing through the ministry of re-engage and the way marriages are being healed and brought together, the way that Western Hills is positioning itself to reach out even further into, into the community and the new folks that are coming to our, onto our campus that I'm getting a chance to meet each week. God is at work. And for that, I'm excited. But I was thinking back to my early days, and one of the first people that left an impression on me in my early days when I started my preaching ministry here was a guy named Fred Green, and many of you may know Fred Green. I've shared Fred's story before, but it ties right into where we're going to go with the message today. So Fred is one of these guys that, as I was a new preacher and I was still trying to figure out what I was doing, I'm still doing that. As I was still trying to figure out how this all went, Fred was frustrated because one day he came up and we were talking, and I didn't know Fred's name. And I was still trying to remember everybody's name, and I didn't know Fred's name. And he, 
he took a little bit of offense. And he went to one of our shepherds at the time and said, and said this is Larry Matthews, and he said, Scott doesn't know my name. And Larry, the wise shepherd I appreciate so much, he said, well, did you introduce yourself to Scott? I thought, no, I didn't. Well, how do you expect him to know you? Now, most people can just kind of have a pity party, but that wasn't Fred. Fred came up to me. The next thing I know that he's got a business card in his hand that has his name. It says, I'm Fred Green. I'm going to get to know you. I said, Awesome. You know, I took the business card. Now I can remember, you know, I shoved it in my pocket and remember. He and his wife Lee invited me over to their house uh, later that month. And my family and I, we went over there. And one of the things I'll never will forget is that when we walked in the door, they had designed their own home and had it built to specs. And we walk in the door, and it was an incredibly just open floor plan, meaning like the main room, like the first thing you encountered just stepping through the front door was the dining table. And I thought, this is my kind of house. And we got invited in, and we had an incredible meal, and Lita was a fabulous cook. And my family, my wife and I, we fell in love with Fred and Lita Green. wasn't much later that Fred comes into my office. And he was always a cheerful guy, but on this particular day, he didn't seem as cheerful. And he said, I need to talk. And we sat down. And remember, I'm still a wet-behind-the-ears minister, trying to let everybody know or trying to hide the fact that I have no idea what I'm doing. And Fred sits down and he says, I just come from Scott and White. I've got liver cancer. And I need to plan my funeral with you. Now, I hadn't done many funerals by that point. I tell you what I'd never done. I'd never planned one with the person for whom the funeral we were planning. So we began to talk. And at some point in that conversation, Fred just looks at me and says, I hope I've done enough. And he was worried about his salvation. And here I am. I'm green, 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 green. I don't know what I'm supposed to say at that moment. What would you have said in that moment? What, what would you do as you face someone that their end date has suddenly been moved up on them? That's what we're going to talk about in today's face-to-face. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to John chapter 3. It's the Gospel of John. And this may be a very familiar passage to you because this is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible when you get down to John 3.16. If nothing else, you may have seen it held up at the end zone of sports, you know, football games. Somebody's always trying to make this reference. Well, I want us to approach it with fresh eyes today and see what message God has for us as we come face to face with who Jesus is in this one. We're going to cover 1 through 21. I hope you've got a Bible open. I hope your app is open because I'm going to ask you to make some notes as we go. But John 3 begins this way. 
Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Hold right there just a second. What you need to know about this is there's some phrases in there that we may not be familiar with, or you may not know what's a Pharisee and what's the Jewish ruling council. If you want to write something in your Bible, just write the word successful next to that. Nicodemus is a successful person by all accounts in that culture. He's the guy that we would all look up to. He's the guy that at least you would like to say, yeah, I know him. He knows me. We hang out. That's the guy you'd want to draw alongside. He'd be righteous. He'd be a church-going man. He'd know his scriptures backwards and forward. He'd have some power because he's got this influence as a Pharisee, which was one of the groups that, think of it, it's kind of like a political party. That's not a perfect illustration, but he's part of the group that gets to make the decisions for everybody else. He is successful. And he comes to Jesus at night. Now, I don't know if he comes to Jesus at night because uh, he's trying to not let anybody else know, or perhaps both he and Jesus are incredibly busy men, and so this is a chance for them to have a quiet conversation. But he comes to Jesus at night, and he says to them, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. There's the question. How can someone be born again? Now, we are still asking that question. This essentially is Fred's question to me in my office that day. Now, we may ask it different ways. We may ask it more like this. How do I get to heaven? How, do, how good do I have to be? What are the rules? How do I get right with God? But, th- but that's the question that, w- that is at the core of everything we are, right? E- even, even if you're not sold out that there's a God and you're convinced of that yet, you're still wondering what happens after I die. And if you're real honest with yourself, you may say, you may say nothing, but if you're real honest with yourself, there's a part of you that still wonders, but what if? But what if there's something after this? This question is something we all wrestle with, and we usually go down the lines of, what do I have to do to get there? How good do I have to be? Somebody tell me the rules. Tell me how high do I have to jump. Tell me how hard do I have to work. To where Fred would say, I hope I've done enough. That is what Nicodemus is asking. And here is Nicodemus, and it's not a man that doesn't know his scriptures. It's not a man that doesn't know his Bible. And Jesus is about to unpack what you and I may refer to as the gospel message, an incredible message of grace to him. So I want to go on, uh, verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying this. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. 
You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus is having a hard time with this. And so his very next question is, how can this be? Now, Nicodemus is not confused about how birth happens. Okay? This is, this is not that, well, Jesus is using a metaphor and he doesn't get it and someday he'll catch up and Jesus will kind of reveal it to him. What Nicodemus is hearing is that it's just like being born and you can't control it. It's just like the wind. Yeah, you see its effects, but you can't control it. In modern culture, we can actually harness it, but we still can't control it. He says, it's going to do what it's going to do. Here's what he's telling Nicodemus. And, and this, this really cuts to the core of what Nicodemus needs to hear. Nicodemus, you can't do it yourself. You can't be born again by your own power. You can't come into a right relationship with God by your own effort. Jesus is about to take his paradigm and turn it upside down because Nicodemus had an impression that most of us live with and we struggle with is if I try harder and I do more, at some point, God falls in love with me. At some point, maybe he doesn't fall in love with me, but at some point, maybe he'll accept me. And so Nicodemus's mind is spinning at this point. How can this be, he asked. Because remember, up to now, his paradigm is, if I do the right things in the right order and I worship the right God, then God's going to gather all the right people together and take them to the right place. That's his understanding. Picking up again. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you about earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, whenever you see that phrase, that is Jesus referring to himself. It is Jesus' number one favorite way to refer to himself. And he is giving a code. He is giving an indicator to Nicodemus. And then he goes into an Old Testament Bible story. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have, may have eternal life in him. And he references something, a Bible story, because Nicodemus would have known this Bible story, and it takes place when the children of God were on the Exodus. They were leaving Egypt, and they were out in the wilderness, and they were trying to get to the promised land, and there had been disobedience at times. And so God sends into the camp snakes. Not like a few, but like thousands. They are swarmed by snakes. Picture a horror show. That's what this was. Venomous snakes. And people began to be bit and they're succumbing to these snakes. And there is a way of, to be saved from them. And God gives Moses some very strange instructions. He says, take a staff 
and fashion a bronze serpent on it. Basically an image of the snake. And I want you to go before the people and I want you to hold up the snake. And all the people had to do was to look on the snake. Look at this thing that Moses had fashioned under God's instructions. And they'd be saved. They'd be healed. They'd be spared from this onslaught of poisonous snakes. Now, that's a strange story. But I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that the reason that God did that is because He was queuing up an illustration for thousands of years later when Jesus was to come. And now Jesus is going to be the one that's lifted up on the cross. And the point that He's telling Nicodemus, and Nicodemus doesn't even know this yet because the cross hasn't happened yet. But Jesus has given him the clues. He's given, this is coming. And he says, I'm going to be lifted up. And anyone who looks to me is going to be spared. And so he lays down the very famous verse in John 3, 16. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He is addressing Nicodemus' core question. He's addressing what may be your core question. What do I have to do? What are the rules? And what he's doing is he's taking it completely out of Nicodemus' hands at this point. Anybody use emojis? If you don't know what emoji is, ask the teenager next to you. But our phone has emojis on it. And we've got an emoji now for almost every possible expression in the world. And one of them has a little face with a head blowing up on it. Here's, the, here's a picture of it. This means mind blown. Okay? Some of you are going, I had no idea. I thought that meant migraine. <laughs> See, it's worth coming to church. You learn important stuff like this. I'm showing you that because you need to understand that Nicodemus's mind has been blown in this moment. He comes to Jesus as somebody that's successful and spiritual, and you would think he's got his faith life all in order, and he basically asks the question, what do I need to do? I've got it battened down, I think, but you've got to help me out. And Jesus begins to unpack this thing about being born again, and he's letting him know it's not in your hands. So there's three takeaways that I want you to understand of how Nicodemus' life is being blown when it comes to John 3.16. And so here's the first way. God loves the whole world. For God so loved thee, and Nicodemus would have leaned in and he would have thought the next thing out of Jesus' mouth would have been the Jewish people. God would have loved the chosen people. God would have loved us. And what he hears Jesus say is God loves the whole world, including the people that you can't stand. And God, lo God loves the ones that do not know him. 
yet. God loves the one that we would call enemies. God loves the Muslim. God loves the one that's in the other political party than what you vote for. God loves the one that's far away, that grew up under different circumstances, that doesn't have the same kind of money as you. God loves the one that doesn't edge their yard right. God loves the one that shows up with 12 items in the 10-item line. I, it's hard to believe. And God loves you. Everybody you meet, including the person that you see in the mirror in the mornings, is a candidate for God's love. And this is news to Nicodemus. Because he's grown up under a system that says God loves the chosen. God loves the insiders. Now Jesus is saying, but no, no, no. This news, this message, this message that when I'm lifted up, it's not just for a certain group of people. It's not for a certain tier or level in our society. It's for the whole wide world. Second way his mind is blown is this. Nicodemus has to realize that God is now sitting in front of him. The God that had been so far off and so distant, the God that he committed his life to, but there always seemed to be a gap because it was always about going to the temple and working through the priest and working through the sacrifice. God is now sitting in front of him. When Jesus says, the Son of Man, and I'm the one that's been to heaven, he's making a clear statement, I am God. And Nicodemus has to wrestle with the fact that he's now coming face to face with God. And the story of God, according to Nicodemus, up to that point was, how hard do I have to work to climb my way up to God? And suddenly he realizes that God has climbed his way down to him and is sitting right in front of him. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again and again throughout this series. The message of the Christian faith is unique in the fact that it's a God come to us message, not a how do we climb up to God message. And there's Jesus sitting in front of him. And he sits in front of you. And he invites you in to ask all your difficult questions and bring everything that you've ever been frustrated with about and bring it to him because he's the one that can handle it. Third way is this. God would rather die than live without you. There's the good news. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, just like the snake, I'm going to be lifted up. And Nicodemus isn't sure what he's talking about this moment. But you know Nicodemus remembered this conversation later when he saw the events play out the crucifixion. I wonder if Nicodemus was broken in the heart at that moment and said, there it is. He's being lifted up on the cross. And what's so mind-blowing is when we want to ask the question of what do I have to do, God looks back at us and says, you can't do anything to save yourself. But I can. And instead of go through eternity without an opportunity to be in relationship with you, God would rather die and he laid himself down on a cross. And that was lifted up. And the moment that was intended to be the greatest moment of despair in all of history becomes the greatest moment of hope. The greatest moment of victory. 
that the universe has ever seen. And Jesus, God, was reclaiming all of those that didn't even know him or recognize him at the moment and was dying for them and for you. So whatever is in your past, and if we were to sit down and have a cup of coffee and we would just get real honest with one another and you were to go through a list of whatever you think your grievances are, that your sins are, the things that you've most violated and you would be ashamed of and you, you almost perhaps have never even spoken them out loud. If we were to go through that, I could with confidence say what the Scripture teaches us, what Jesus is saying this very moment is, and God died for that one. And God died for that one. And, God, and you could go, yeah, but what about, but what about, and God died for that one. And the invitation is to look to that truth and believe in it. So there I sat with Fred. And I'm telling you in a moment that did not come from me. Because I'm not that smart. You can ask the staff. They will tell you. When Fred said, I hope I've done enough. said, Fred, it's not about what you've done. But I'd like you to do something. And Fred was a woodworker, if you didn't know. And he was very gifted at it. He said, I want you to make a cross. And he looked at me and said, really? I said, yeah. And of course, I'm still waiting for the Holy Spirit to give me the next sentence of what I'm supposed to say said, because as you make that cross, I want you to look at that cross and I want you to know about the hope that you have in Jesus, not about what comes from you, not about what you've done or haven't done, but that you fully trusted in Jesus to be the one that saves you. And Fred did. Here's a picture of that cross that hangs in my office now. And what Fred would do and I didn't expect this. this. This wasn't part of my great plan. But he made that cross and then he set it on his fireplace. And as people would go by and visit him in his last weeks and days, they moved a chair out there into the living room for him so he could, Fred loved people, and so he could see the people that were coming to see him. He'd say, have you seen my cross? And he'd point people to the fireplace where he's leaning. And he tell them about the hope that he has in Jesus. I, I mean, this is, this is straight out of the Old Testament. He would look upon the cross for his salvation. And so when we had Fred's funeral, we set the cross up and right at the end of the funeral, I said, I'm going to give Fred the last word. And I stepped off of this stage and we had a light come down, the cross was sitting there, and it just beamed on that. And together we worshiped with amazing grace. Because that was the message that Fred crossed over to the other side with. And that's the message that if there's a legacy that he can live, I want to leave, I want to leave it with you. 
that Nicodemus' question, the one that we all wrestle with, how much do I have to do, comes back through all of history, through this moment with Jesus saying, it's not about you. It's not try harder and do more. It is fully trust in the one that went to the cross in your place. Find your confidence in that. Because the message of John 3.16 is simply this. And here's what I want you to get out of John 3.16 is this. God loved, so God gave. I believe, so I receive. And he invites us in to that. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray for you right now. And maybe you're on the fence about this. Maybe you haven't fully stepped into accepting that and participating in that moment of making Jesus Lord of your life in the waters of baptism. And somebody may say, well, wait, 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 wait. Baptism, that sounds kind of like that's a work, isn't it? No, no, no. Baptism is no more of a work than it was for the people that day in the desert to turn and look at the bronze serpent. That's what this is. It is a turning of your life and looking at who Jesus is and saying, that's the one that I'm going to trust. That's the one that I'm going to surrender my life to because I can't do more and I can't try harder and I'm sick of trying. So I want to pray for you that we would all receive, like Nicodemus, this mind-blowing news and trust in that. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And after I pray, Jeff's going to come up and we're going to lead a song and we're going to worship that. And I want this song to be our anthem for today, how deep the Father's love, and this is the extent that God would go to us. And then while we're singing that song, if you want to come up and talk to me or one of the other ministers, we're going to be down front and we'd receive you then. Let me pray for you. Father, I am grateful that it's not a based-on-me-try-harder type to come to know you. So, Father, I'm praying that each of us in this moment would come face-to-face with Jesus and see in those eyes the eyes of love and reception to us and the one that's willing to sacrifice his life in our place. Father, may we have the confidence in that. Not our own spiritual resumes, not our own uh, accomplishments, or anything that I would hold up but the fact that Jesus says that you love the world so much that you would come and die for it. And in that we have hope. Father, for anyone that this message that they're wrestling with, I pray that you would break through, break through whatever defenses we try to put up. And for the person that says, this seems to be too good to be true. I get it. It does seem to be too good to be true, but it is because Jesus committed to it, because Jesus declared it so, and then Jesus walked out of the grave to prove it so. So, Father, I ask all this in the name of the one that does lay down his life for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.